This is Matthew Hester, Senior Pastor at Dominion Church. I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Dominion Church podcast experience. Our podcast aims to deliver truth from God's Word concerning His kingdom and your righteous identity as His beloved child. Please subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and do share it with a friend. We pray that you are blessed, challenged, and changed by what you're about to hear. Thank you for joining us here at Dominion. We're so glad that you're here with us online. If you're on Facebook, uh, please like and share this so that it can get in front of as many people as possible. Maybe you're watching on our YouTube channel at Dominion Church SC, or I hope you're joining us on the Dominion Church podcast experience. The point is you're joining us, and I'm so glad that you're here with us. Uh, Do us a favor. We'd love for you to come and be a part of one of our corporate gatherings. We meet here at the Maravan Center on Sundays at 1.30 p.m., and you can find that address information, things like that, on our Facebook page or on our website at dominionchurch.net. So I want to go ahead and continue in this series. This is actually part three of a series that we've been doing called The Rorschach God, The Rorschach God. And the verse that has kind of been our baseline verse is out of Psalm 50, verse 21. There's a phrase that we find there. And actually, I'm going to look at those verses a little bit more today. You thought I was exactly like you. And this is a, actually a prophetic word from the heart of God that's being released through David. And so I want to look at those verses here before we continue in this session. Uh, and so you can go and read Psalm 50 on, at your own opportunity. Uh, but then we see here in verse, uh, Psalm 50 around verse 16 or 17, uh, you start to hear these words, you hate discipline, you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought I was like yourself. The translation I use for this series, you thought I was exactly like you. And so the the thought behind that is because God was silent, they assumed that what they were doing reflected him. And then when he opens up his mouth, he's like, wait, you, you thought I was like you, but I'm nothing like you. If you actually go and do a study on the word holiness and And that's a word that needs to be reclaimed and redefined in the church world. Because most of us, (coughs) from time to time, you have to excuse me, my voice, my my wife um, has a cold, and because we share everything, she she made sure that I shared that too. Uh, But uh, (laughs) I love you, babe. Um, But when you study holiness, religion has used holiness to do what religion does best. We create us versus them. And so if my holiness standard, whatever that looks like, is better than your holiness standard, well, then you have something to live up to, and I am, you know, holier than you are. Uh, The actual word holy is not that complicated. It simply means other than. 
That's actually what it means, other than. So when the, the, if you can imagine now the seraphim angels singing, we see this in the open vision in Isaiah, the seraphim angels singing, they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. What they're actually proclaiming is he's other than, other, other than anything you can imagine. When, when, when you say he's good, well, he's actually holier than what you think is good. When you say he's gracious, he's other than whatever your reference point is for grace. He's better than, he's greater than, he's other than, he is holy. And then is it any wonder that Jesus gives his own disciples the same admonition, be holy as I am holy. So holiness is other than. And we, we can say it a hundred different ways. We use metaphors because our language just doesn't work. But you can say, in the world, but not of it. Holy. It is not us adopting a standard of rules or regulations that makes us better than other people. It's literally when people behold you, they can't put their finger on it. But they're like, there's, there's something different about them. What, what is it about them? I, I want to know who they know. I, why, why do they still have joy when everything seems like to be hell around them? Why do they still have peace when the last thing the world even entertains is peace? How, how is it that they still have a pep in their step when I know that they've been through hardship? That's, that's holiness. Something that you cannot produce of your own accord. We carry a holy God in us. And so, God is other than. He, he is not a God of our own making. Not As much as we wish that he would be, he's not going to submit to our own standards. God always has a way of jumping over the fence, of breaking out of the box, whatever metaphor you need. He is going to make sure that he is other than that. And so what I really want to lean into in this session is, is about enemies and enemy verbiage. And, and for some of you, this is going to be some review because I'm going to lean into the notes on the enemy's table. This is a, a message that I first did last year, but I need to communicate some of these truths to help us in this vein that we're in. And so, you know, I, I, I just got back from New York. We had an amazing men's meeting as one of the meetings while we were there. And and we, as men, we started talking about who do we most identify with in Scripture. Now, ladies, I know it's a different exercise for you, you know, because you, you've got, it, it's interesting, most of the women in, in the Bible are pretty amazing to relate to. Now, there's a few, you probably don't, you know, Jezebel comes to mind, right? There, there, so there's a few, you probably don't want to be Lot's wife, and we don't even know her name, it's just Lot's wife. Um... But, you know, you think of Ruth, you think of Sarah, you think, I mean, they're, they're, th there's just amazing women to, to go after. Now, so for men, our, I guess our role models scripturally can be difficult at times because they have good qualities and then they have like extreme, not so good qualities, but God still uses them, right? He still, he still will use them uh, to, to bring about his purpose. He still will strive with them in their place of understanding. And, and so... For me, now you can't use Jesus because that's kind of unfair. I, you know, if I sat here and there were, you know, 100 men in here, they probably, Jesus is who I relate to. Okay, wait, okay. Don't just give me the answer you think I want to hear. Like, who do you really relate to? And, and for me, for my part, it would be David. Like, that's the guy. 
either David or Peter, if I'm just being honest, because I think I'd make a great Peter as well. Um, you know, Jesus blessed you one second, calling you the devil the next. That's, I, yeah, I think I could, I could probably do that. Uh, actually, when we were up in New York, uh, I was joking. I said, that would be me. I'd go ahead and have T-shirts printed, like I am Satan. That's what I would have on the shirt. Because, you know, Jesus literally calls him Satan at one point, and I'd have the reference underneath. You know, that's me. Don't look for the devil. I'm the devil, you know. Uh, so David, you know, lopping off heads, going to war, a womanizer, but a man after God's own heart. So it's almost like, hey, you know, you can do these things. And, and if you just repent well, you know, after all, Jesus identifies with David. He calls David his father. And, and, and he, he comes out of the tribe. The, the, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Um, Jesse is, is, is the root of that tribe. Jesus is the golden branch from that tribe. Uh, it's amazing. And then, you know, uh, he even when, when he's having probably one of the most profound offerings in Scripture, remember that's when the, the widow comes and brings her to might. That's in response to him actually giving a message. If you go and read that, the message was that he was right now sitting on the throne of his father, David. And a different message for a different time. When, when the woman heard that Jesus had fulfilled the promises of the old, it compelled her to be generous. I love that. And she gave everything that she had. Um, so a big connection there with David, Right? But, but when you start thinking about David, there's a lot of enemy territory, a lot of enemy verbiage, a lot of bloodshed. Remember, one, one of the first songs we hear about David is Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Um, now, I don't know how much of that's made up, like in terms of how many people, but they both sound like a lot to me. I mean, if someone came in and said, Flora has slain her thousands, I bet you don't mess with Flora. I mean, she's <laughs> slain her thousands. But then somebody walks in, oh, they've slain their tens of thousands. Whoa. Whoa, hold on. So there was a lot of, a lot of bloodshed going on here. And, and something that I've, I've touched on in some of our, in our study here is it makes me wonder if, if there's not this connection between some of the violent tendencies of Samuel uh, and it seemed like he was joined to violent kings. Uh, Saul was certainly violent. David, additionally violent. Uh, we have record where Saul would go and, and, and lock, lock guys into pieces. Um, when he would approach a city, the elders would come and say, do you come in peace? Like, they were afraid of Samuel. And I'm like, so is that, is that God? Like, is that really the heart and nature of God? Um, and so then we get to places like this, um, in First Chronicles 22, uh, David wanted to build a temple for God, wanted to build a house for him, and, 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 and then God begins to speak. <laughs> uh, in First Chronicles 22, verses 7 through 9, David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord, but his word of the Lord came to me, you have shed much blood and you have fought many wars, you basically will not build a house in my name because you, you've shed much blood on earth in my sight. But you'll have a son, and he will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all of his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. So David is a man of war. 
and he wants to build God a house, God said, you can't build me a house. You, you've got blood on your hands. If anyone's going to build my house, it has to be a man of peace, and your son can be just that man. Now, we read that, and, and what I want to encourage us to do, and this is so much of what this series is trying to encourage us to do, is again, you've heard me say, I'm going to continue to say it, I'm not telling you what to think, I'm telling you that you can think and you should think. How many times do you believe David took life and felt like it was ordained and authored by God? When, again, when I was growing up, I thought, well, that's, he, these are enemy armies and they're persecuting Israel. And so, of course, God wants them to, you know, lop off heads and take names. That's, that's what he wants them to do. You know, uh, and, and it's, it's ugly business, but that's what happens when you pick on God's people, right? Okay. So now, does this sound like God? If he, would, if he tells David, hey, go kill them. They're messing with you. Kill them all. But then it gets to the point where David wants to build a house, and God's like, well, you can't because you, you got blood on your hands, and people like you can't build houses for me. Wait a second. So did he, did he tell David to do this, knowing that if David obeyed him, it would disqualify him from building his house? Hmm. Or could it be that David, he was, he was encountering the Warshak God, a God that looked like him. His enemies are my enemies, right? His, his will is, is, looks like my will oftentimes. Until you see the will of God on display, and he's like, wait, you're disqualified. You, you can't even build a house for me. Your son can. You can't. And then even with Solomon, as the story goes, you go and study it out. He even told Solomon, okay, I will come and hang out in your temple, but I'm not, I don't really do houses, really. So this is the deal I'm going to make with you. Can you hear the heart of God? This is the deal I'll make. I'll hang out there as long as you don't build temples to other gods. As soon as you do that, I'm gone. And what is God showing him? This is, this is not like God being severe. He's showing Solomon. I, I don't do temple worship. I don't do um, idolatry. Uh, if you build a temple to, to my right and to my left for me to fit in, I'm out of here because I'm not a God who fits in. And so sure enough, it didn't take long. You, you have enough wives uh, from conquered armies that want to worship their own gods. It doesn't take long. And Solomon started building other temples. And then it said that the spirit departed from that house and did not return to a temple for 400 years. And when he returned to the temple, he returned in the person of Jesus in the flesh when Jesus walked into the temple. God does not do temples. He does not do temple worship. He does not do idolatry. And again, a, a side note, just because I've really been meditating on this a lot in the last week, all idolatry is self-worship, all of it. Now, you can build a statue. You can put it up on one of these speakers right here and bow down and worship it. No matter what you call it, that statue is a representation of you, right? When Moses went up to get his commands, right? And then it says that Aaron and all the people down there, they, they started melting down gold and they built a calf. That calf was a representation of them. Who built it? They built it. So any idolatry is self-idolatry. 
That's why, you know, I, when, a lot of times when I talk about things like this floor, I talk about the enemy being defeated or we need to reexamine what we believe about spiritual warfare. People come up with all these stories about, well, I've been in territories where there's, there's dark power and dark energy and, and they believe that these, you know, idols have power. And I'm thinking, well, well, they do. But it represents them. It's literally their own, it's a manifestation of their own belief system. And, and the Bible is pretty clear in this area. It says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so if you believe something has power, it becomes powerful. If you don't believe, if you don't believe that, go back to 2020 and look at how many people were afraid of COVID. And, and, and it's, no matter how afraid they got of it, it still didn't stop them from getting it, right? And, and how many times they got treated and all these things. And I'm not trying to get the, the politics of it all. But I found myself in 2020 having to, as a minister, minister against the spirit of fear. Now, none of us have built an altar to fear, at least not that I've checked. But if we did, we don't need a visible altar for fear. We carry it with us all the time. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. I don't know how God found all that. So again, David, man of war, uses enemy verbiage often. And he, and he does it uh, all throughout his Psalms. Psalm 23 is, is one of the verses that stands out to me um, like, like a blinking light. Psalm 23, verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And so again, I want to talk about Matthew. I don't want to project this onto you, but when I would read these verses, this is literally what I would picture. I'd picture a long table. The Lord invites me as his beloved son to sit down and he, an amazing feast. And, and I, again, if I lose somebody here, I'm sorry. When I think of a feast, I, I think of the movie Hook. Um, it, was, it was a great Peter Pan movie back in the day, and they had this imaginary feast, but it turned into a real feast. Anyway, that's what I usually think of, and there's, there's turkey and chicken and mac and cheese and all the fixings, and, and, but my enemies are way on the other end, and they just watch me dig in, and while I'm digging in, the, Jesus is rubbing my shoulders and, and just telling me everything's going to be okay, and they're starving on the other end. I'm just like, hey, this is, how, this is how it looks. When I'm blessed, you are humiliated, and, but you get to watch me. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You get to watch me be blessed at the table. Um, I think David kind of had a similar idea, a similar idea. Um, and so, but there, there's a lot of enemy verbiage. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 45, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. So Jesus is going back and referencing the Old Testament multiple times. This was the foundation of Old Testament law, okay? <laughs> to, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But then Jesus says, I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. Wait, so, okay. David says, I'm anointed in the presence of my enemies. But then Jesus says, this whole time up until my day, you've been taught, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Now I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Why? Well, if you really want to be considered sons of God, this is like 101 right here. You got to learn how to love your enemies. And in Romans 5, Paul really leans into this 
And what he does, he puts us all on the same playing field. In Romans 5, verse 10, he says, For if, while we were God's enemies, we, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Okay, so David, you, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies. Paul says, we all are enemies. <laughs> well, my gosh, what in the world? What are you supposed to do with this? There's enemies everywhere. But you, you keep with Paul, and then you get in Colossians 1. And I want to particularly look uh, here in verses 19, a few verses here. God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies. There's that word again, but then he brings amazing clarity. You were enemies in your own minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. <coughs> Did you see that? Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your own minds, So, everyone watching, listening, here in the building, we all once were enemies of God. How are we enemies? In our own minds. And then it connects to, why? Because of your evil behavior. So, in other words, our, beha our behavior created this imaginary wedge in our minds that disqualified us from feeling like we had any access to God. Okay, well, he's a holy God, and I'm doing things that are terrible. And so I must be his enemy. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Yes. So the point I want to make is that we all first approach God as his enemy. Not on his part, but on our part. Because the, the truth is, God has no enemies. To, to be an enemy with someone else, there has to be two opposing parties. I was sharing this uh, last week, and I actually shared this even in Nicaragua, uh, and the response was, was very interesting. You can't make me your enemy. That's something I had to choose, right? You have to have two opposing parties to be truly enemies. So, like, Megan, for example, if I just got up here and said, okay, Megan is my enemy, I can't stand her anymore, and that's that, and you go to her, and she says, I love him, I I have no issue with him whatsoever. You wouldn't say we're enemies. You would say, I have an issue. <laughs> hey, he's got a problem. Because she is not willing to be his enemy. So if, you, if you're not participating, you can't be enemies. Now, look at God. <laughs> look at what Paul says. We all, we, we've all been alienated from God. 
We've all been enemies in our own minds because of our, our behavior. So you approach God. God, I know you hate me. God, I know that you've brought me through all that. I know that you're the one that killed my parents. I know that you're the one that did this and that. And then God just is sitting there and he's got arms open, loving you unconditionally, pouring grace and mercy on you because you can't make him be your enemy. It's not gonna happen. I know the thoughts I have for you, says the Lord. I know the plans I have for you. I've loved you before you got here to make a mistake. Nothing has changed that. You can, be, you can be my enemy as much as you want, but you can't make me be your enemy. It's not going to happen. So, so there's still a place for you at the table. Come on. Come on and sit down. You see that chair right there? It's got your name on the back of it. Just go ahead and have a seat. You may not even receive me as father yet, but that's okay. That's all right. I shared a quote earlier this week on Facebook. I said, uh, if you're afraid of God, continue to run to him until you receive him as father. At some point, you're going to encounter him as father. And a lot of times we have to run through the levels of our, our deception, the levels of our own making. We have made God out to be someone he is not. And I would say, is it any wonder why we consider ourselves enemies of God? And then when we realize he has no enemies, the next question we have to ask is, well, then why do we have enemies? Jesus is the standard. God is our father. Why do we have enemies? Well, I've already given you a secret to that. The only way you have an enemy in your life is if you give them permission to be an enemy. If, they, if you take the posture of an enemy, well, then now you're enemies. But if you just keep loving on them, I hate you. Well, you know what? I love you. That's what Jesus is saying. Pray for those that persecute you. Love those that hate you. He is telling us in very direct terms, you don't, we, we do not posture ourselves as enemies. We're, we're not going to do it. Just not going to do it. All right? Blaise Pascal, I love this. Quote, Jesus came to tell men that they have no enemies but themselves. Jesus came to tell men they have no enemies but themselves. And so if, if we could, I would submit if we could just really pull back all the layers, all the facades, and we could see the table of God for what it is, we'd be amazed. Because we'd find it is equally represented by who we would consider the family of God and the enemies of God, all sitting at the same table. Why? Because the founder of the feast has no enemies. <laughs> Are you hearing what I'm saying? See, we're the ones that get hung up on, on the minors instead of the majors, okay? What do I mean by that? When we say that, okay, sin came into the world through one man, right? And all sinned. And then we say, but the gift is not like the trespass. The gift is greater than the trespass. And so what does Jesus do? He actually releases righteousness to all men. So we are, oftentimes, based on the messages we preach and the gospel that we declare, we believe the sin of Adam has greater power than the righteousness of Jesus, wow. right? Because we, we have no problem, do we, Miss Flora, being convinced that everyone sins. But then the very verse that says, now the all are made righteous through the work of Jesus, we say, well, that's, that's not exactly how that works because there are things you got to do first to be righteous, 
even though we're told in multiple places, there's at least 10 verses that say righteousness is the gift of God. You don't earn righteousness. Now, you grow into righteousness, right? What is righteousness? The back wall, beloved son, beloved daughter of an always good father. Listen, God is your good father if you don't believe it, if you don't receive him, and even if you hate him. Doesn't change that he's your father. That's what I'm saying. If you're afraid of him, run to him till you see him as father. As much as it would break my heart, if my boys came to me today and said, Dad, we don't, we don't receive you as a father anymore. Listen, they can say it until they're blue in the face. It doesn't change one thing. I'm still your dad. I still love you. That hurts. <laughs> Are you okay? If there's one of the many layers that the parable of the, uh, of the prodigal sons teach us, it teaches us that God has a heart for everyone. He has a heart for the one that runs and the one that stays. And he's asking us, well, you have the heart for the ones that run and the ones that stay. And the ones that stay, I would humbly submit, he's probably talking about the Judaizers. He's talking about those that grew up in the house of God with all the prophetic promises of God. The Messiah is going to come. We stayed in the house, and they still didn't have the heart of the Father because they got upset as soon as he celebrated those who were lost coming back home, Right? And then, even then, the father doesn't rebuke the son that stayed home. Did you ever notice that in the parable? No, he says, listen, all that I have is yours. You've been here the whole time. Anytime you want to party, just throw it. Let's go. I don't, God is always generous, always eager for us to enjoy who he is. We're the ones that get hung up on, well, who has the right to enjoy him? Who has the right to be blessed by him? Right? When God just, I'm just... I, I want everybody to be blessed, everybody to be loved. And can you trust me, the Father, to take care of them? Can you trust me to help them with their hangups and issues? You know? I mean, how good are we at that? Let's be honest. How good are you at helping people with their issues? I mean, I'm not that great at it. I've tried before. I think the only time I've made any impact is when I actually release the heart of God. Isn't that funny how that works? So God's table is designed to welcome and nourish his enemies. After all, that's all of us. <laughs> Not on his part, but on ours. Um, I'll share this one example, and, and, and uh, we'll, we'll finish it here. I usually share two, but I would encourage you, go back, watch the first two sessions of this. Go in our archives and, and watch the enemy's table because I go into a lot more detail on this. So we talk about Saul, who I think if we could ever kind of identify as an enemy of God, it'd be Saul, who's, who we know by Paul, because, I mean, the dude was, was hell-bent on destroying the church. And I would say if there's anybody that God would be like, yeah, that's an enemy, that, he would be the one. But nope, even, even Saul, he would, not, he would not posture himself as an enemy. Instead, he reveals himself to him. And he reveals himself... As indwelling Holy Ghost, and you, you, you go and you read that in Galatians, it's, it's amazing. For three years, Paul, after his initial encounter with the Spirit of the Lord, for three years, he goes to Arabia, and he, this is what he's telling the apostles in the Apostolic Council. He said, and for those three years, I was taught things by the Holy Spirit that no man has taught me. And so the, the questions that I ask, and I think we have every right to ask, how did he get Holy Ghost? I know that sounds funny to ask it that way. But you know, there are churches today 
that when people came in, one of the first questions we asked is, do you have Holy Ghost? And if you don't, we're going to help you get Holy Ghost. And then what do we do? We pray and we, it's acts of faith. I'm not knocking any of that. I'm saying, well, how did Paul get Holy Ghost? I mean, who prayed him through? Who, who said, come on, open up your mouth and pray or whatever. No, he immediately begins to be taught by Holy Spirit, teaches him things that no man has taught him by way of revelation. And then I, I asked the next one, well, how did Paul get saved? Because again, this is Sunday. People come in. Okay, if there's anyone here that doesn't know the Lord, come on up here up front, and we're going to pray, and we're going to get you saved. How do we get them saved? Once you repeat this prayer after me, now that you've believed it, you prayed this prayer, you believe it in your heart, now Jesus is in your life. He's the Lord of your life. Plug into a local church. This church would be great. Get into our study programs. Read your Bible. Pray. Um, listen to Christian music, and you're good. Are you okay? How did Paul get Holy Ghost in him? Holy Ghost is God, by the way. Remember? He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're all one and the same. Who, <laughs> he hadn't even written Romans yet. And a lot of us use the Romans road as our pattern for getting people to get saved. So I'm, just, I'm not answering the question. I'm asking the questions. Again, God would not allow Saul to be his enemy. He reveals himself to Saul and it changes Saul forever. Changes him so much that we know him by the name Paul, which is his Gentile name, which is amazing. And then the other example, and this is the one I'll lean into as we wrap up. I think about the table of the Lord. David, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And I think of the Last Supper. That's the table of the Lord right there. Can you see it? There he is with his disciples. And, he, and he's finally getting them to eat the bread and drink the wine that he talked about earlier in John. And he, he breaks the bread, eat this, this is my body, drink this wine. It's, it's the cup of the new covenant, pour it out, drink it, it's, it's my blood. And, and, and so at the same time, they're not just observing what we call the Last Supper, this is during Passover, so they're also observing the Seder meal. They're actually having the Seder meal. And so when it's time, as they're eating, he said, now, okay, guys, this is... Let me back up. I'm losing my train of thought here. Communion happened before Jesus dipped the bread with Judas. See, we miss, we miss this all the time. Jesus still wanted to make sure Judas had communion. Even though he knew he wanted to betray him. Are you hearing me right now? Jesus has no enemies. And so then he said, okay, so on to another line of business here real quick. Someone's going to betray me tonight. And the one that dips with me is going to betray me. And in Seder tradition, they, they tore the bread, they dip it into, King James says, the sop. It's actually, it's a fish sauce. They dip it into the sauce. And Seder tradition is you don't eat the bread that you dip yourself. You hand it to somebody you love. And so now can you see the picture? The hand of Jesus, the hand of Judas. Jesus turns and hands him the bread. Even though you're going to betray me, I love you. I'm handing you the bread. I'm, I'm on, I would only give it to someone I love anyway. Go do what you're going to do. Do you see this, this picture? You have come to this table as my enemy but I have no enemies. 
Even what you're about to do is going to set into effect a chain reaction that is going to put me on the cross. You're still welcome at the table. I still love you with all my heart. Do what you're going to do. And then that Judas would still have the confidence to still dip. That blows my mind. Absolutely blows my mind. Now, if that kind of a lifestyle and mentality is not holy, I don't know what is. Holy other than. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think just me, Matthew. If I knew someone sitting across the table from me wants me to die, well, they, I wouldn't say Judas wanted him to die. He's just wanting to betray him. He didn't know they were actually, I don't think, going to take his life. He, he probably thought he'd be pardoned. Can I, I want to give Judas a break here. But if I knew they had ill intent, let's put it that way, would I be that gracious? No, I would be like, get out, get out of my table. Get out of my house. You, you've lost your mind. Judas Iscariot. <laughs> Look how holy Jesus is. He's so other than. I know what you're going to do. I love you. Do what you want to do. what you've set your heart to do. It's okay. Nothing's going to change how I feel about you. And, and because the church has not grasped this, we have been ignored and passed over because we have nothing to offer that's other than to the world. We've created our own enemies, our own armies, our own resistance, our own I told you so, however you want to put it, our own political factions. This quote by Richard Rohr, man, it just, oh, it's heartbreaking. Religion has in fact outdone culture in dualistic thinking. We've become as violent and as hateful towards our enemies, damning them to hell and whatever else, that the world doesn't look to us for wisdom because we're trapped in the dualistic mind instead of the mind of Christ that we're supposed to have. We always talk about that day the world's going to run to the church. It's only going to run to the church when it sees the church offers something other than what they already have readily available. Bottom line, God will never be your enemy. He loves us even when we want to betray him, even if we decide in our hearts we want to kill him. He would rather embrace his enemies than to use violence against them because that is not his way. His way is love. His way is washing the feet of others. And that must be our way if we hope to reflect his character and nature well. Yeah, so I think we'll end it there. I, I went longer than I should have on this one, but I pray that this is helping you as we continue in this vein. And when we do part four, I want to lean into beholding the lamb. Beholding the lamb. The, the lamb slain is our mascot. All right? You know, I, I enjoy football. I, I do. And my team's the Panthers. And so I love the, I love the masculine, monstrous, the fangs bearing and the claws. Yeah. But in the kingdom of God, the only team that's there, uh, the mascot's the slain lamb. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> that, that is God's show of force. Um, come, come, and, come and taste and see that I'm good. I, I don't win the way you win. I don't rule the way that you rule. I, 
I, um, I conquer by love. What in the world is going on here? But all that said and done, that is certainly not a God in our image because I would not come up with a God that looks like that. When Paul preaches that kind of a gospel, we know that it must be born of heaven because it's certainly not a gospel that any of us would come up with. Lay down your life. Be taken advantage of. Doesn't make any sense. So I have to believe it's born from heaven because <laughs> it certainly wouldn't be born out of my heart. Wow, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this time today. Lord, I thank you that you have no enemies. <laughs> Oh, thank you, Lord. Each one of us first approached you as an enemy on our part, not on yours. You received us, loved us, pour out your grace, continue to do so. Now, Lord, the question I just want to lean into as we, as we wrap up here, since you have no enemies, why do we? What is it about us that is so different? And I think the simplicity of it is, is that we have to learn how to stop posturing ourselves as enemies. Well, how do I do that? Well, it's most basic, simple form. We free ourselves of the need to defend ourselves. Because if you defend yourself from someone, you're showing them who you believe they are. If I defend myself, I see you as an enemy. And so, Lord, just, just help us to lean into that. I know that sounds so the opposite of what our mind is telling us at times, of what our, what our desire is. <laughs> but Lord, help us to, to know your ways. Help us, Lord, to, to offer to the world something holy, something other than what is readily available to them. And, and if there's anything I know about the world, and we all know this, the world is very well acquainted with force and violence and bloodshed and chaos. Can, can they come to the church and find something different? If they can, well, then we will certainly see the world coming in and invading the church in the way that we always hoped they, that it would. That they come that they may cast their cares upon the Lord. They, they come that they might have an encounter with Jesus, the unconditional love of the Father. But if they just trade in their sword in the world for a sword in the church, well, then what good does that do? They trade one enemy in the world for another enemy in the church. One system that separates others in the world for another system that separates others in the church. There's nothing holy to behold. So, Lord, let us show and release what is holy, who is holy in our lives. Lord, I thank you for all these things now. I decree them by faith in and through the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us. Like and share this so that others can be blessed as a result. We'd love to see you at one of our corporate gatherings Sundays at 1.30. God bless you. Have an amazing week. We'll see you next time.